good morning, Vintage Church. Glad to be with you this morning, starting off saying what a blessing uh, to be led in such sweet worship. Blake, the team, thank you so much. My name is Ben Williams. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Baptist Church in Olive Branch. And so on behalf of that congregation, we bring you greetings. So glad to be with you this morning. Uh, We are partner churches. I know most of you might not know that, uh, but Bryce and I went to the same seminary. There's a whole host of close guys that went to seminary together, spent that three to four years building up a camaraderie around the gospel. And I'll tell you what, um, not to, to brag, this is not boasting, but the Lord has really used a lot of the men that were kind of in our circle of friends to uh, plant churches, to see churches revitalized. And I'm telling you what, it's just a blessing to be a part of this family this morning and seeing the friendship, the like-mindedness, the keen spirit that your church has with Redeemer Baptist Church. I brought with me my family, my beautiful wife, Audrey. We have five kids Five kids, that's right. They're all 10 and below. Jack, Jovi, Judah, June, and Josie May. You can see the J train that we kind of stuck with with their names, but I'm glad to have them with us this morning as well. Always a thrill to have my family come and just fellowship and be together with other like-minded believers. But I am, it really is a joy. It is a thrill to be in this place with you this morning. Yes, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes. I know it's already been read, but if you have a Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I do want to say just a special thanks for just inviting me. What a blessing it is to come here and be able to preach the Word of God, to be able to be a part of this series, Kingdom Family, from which I've identified as I've looked through the website and listened to portions of the sermons that have been preached really about reorienting the way we view life, the way we view family, the way that we view marriage, the way that we view singleness, the way that we view parenting, finances, possessions, how we spend our time, what we expend our energy towards. The gospel changes everything. Amen? Amen. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this book, Ecclesiastes, which is, may appear to be a, a strange book to, to really go to when we talk about stewardship. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is the stewardship of life in the kingdom family. Now, stewardship can be kind of broad stroke. And so there might be a little bit of overlap from some of the things that you've previously heard, uh, especially when we look and read this portion of the book. Uh, but let me give you kind of a framework, a little background of what we're dealing with. I don't have time to tell you why Ecclesiastes was written and some of the richness behind why God did what he did through his messenger. It's traditionally thought that King Solomon is the writer, and so we're going to go with that because it really does make sense. I know that there are some arguments against it, but it makes sense. Number one, he identifies himself at the beginning of the book as the son of David and the king of Israel. There's really only three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, before the kingdom split into two, before there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so it really makes sense, number one, just by identifying himself as the king of Israel— 
Because we know that it wasn't Saul. We know that it wasn't David. And he mentioned nothing about the split kingdom. And the date kind of tells us that it was before the split occurred, okay? Also, additionally, there are many proverbial statements. I don't know if you studied it. I don't know if you've studied it as a church. But in this book, there's a lot of proverbial statements that look just like the Proverbs that Solomon wrote that we're confident that he also authored as well, as well as mentioning uh, different characters like the forbidden woman. You kind of see that woven throughout Proverbs as well. And so there's a lot of similarities between what we know Solomon wrote in Proverbs and what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he identifies himself as the preacher. So he's preaching to a group of people. Now, Chapter 12 will tell you that he is writing also to his sons, but in this occasion, he's speaking to an audience and identifies himself as the preacher. And what, what do we know about Solomon? What do we need to know before we really dive into this particular passage and our study on stewardship from this passage? And some of you probably already know this, but Solomon had a reputation. He was one of the wisest, most powerful men that ever lived. In fact, God granted him wisdom. He was not a man that prayed for wealth and honor and prestige, though he ended up having that, and God bestowed that upon him in his life. Solomon said, I just want wisdom, and so God granted him wisdom. Now, what's interesting is that we learn from viewing Solomon's life, because even when he wrote this particular passage, he was coming towards the end of his life. He's kind of looking back on all the ways that he messed up on the good gifts that God gave him. Wisdom, wealth, power, influence, prestige. He's looking back and he said, what a, what a mess. What a mess that I have made. And those that listen to me, I, my, my wisdom to you is that you don't make the same mess that I've made. Solomon had everything, and yet he never had peace. He never had true satisfaction. And so God used him to write this book, and really it's in a category of Scripture called wisdom literature. But if you read Ecclesiastes, if you know anything about this book, and you can already see it by our passage today, there's a lot of pain in Ecclesiastes. Some people would say this is the most depressing book to read and to study. And I get that. On the surface, reading it, you're like, what is happening? How is this a book of the Bible? This is a guy that says uh, a few times throughout the book, I ended up hating my life. Very depressing outlook. But God chose Solomon. Solomon was his vessel for us. A testimony for us saying, listen, all the things that you could ever want in this world, this man had it that never truly satisfied him. No real peace. And so this morning, what is the preacher? What is he trying to communicate to us? What does God want for us? I really break it down like this. He wants to show us wisdom in the monotony of life, but not just wisdom in the monotonous routine of life, but also wisdom in the chaos of life. If you study the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what you're going to see. Solomon says, listen, this life can be dull, or this life can be chaos. 
So what he wants for us this morning, what God wants for us this morning, is to see wisdom in the monotony of life and wisdom in the chaos of life. Because Solomon found himself miserable in the routine, and he found himself miserable in the chaotic acquisition of wealth, pleasure, earthly pleasure, and knowledge. He found himself miserable in the monotony and in the chaos. So how are we supposed to live? The real answer, I'm going to drop the answer, the, the main point, if you will, the fulcrum, the, the climax, if you will, of Ecclesiastes is to live in light of eternity because we're stuck under the sun and things aren't going to make sense. It's chaotic. A lot of times for us, it's monotonous. It's just the same thing over and over again. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. But God says we need to live in light of eternity. We're stuck under the sun. Guess what we need to do? We need to look to the one who is over the sun, above the sun. To live in light of eternity, to enjoy being alive. Even though we can say just like the king said, the preacher said, that this is a vain life. It's fleeting. It's like a mist. Comes and goes. Before we know it, we're gone. And everything that we've accomplished just vanishes. There's no real lasting reputation that we can leave on this earth. I know that's like, whoa, man, that hurts my heart. We're here and then we're forgotten. We need to enjoy being alive and we need to love the life that God has given us here. For we are a people that are prone to discontentment. We can say amen, I hope. Right? We are a people that are prone to be discontent. Always waiting for something else, something more. Waiting for what's next. Not happy here. Until we forget to be faithful in the here and the now and the present. And listen, our culture, it preaches, it screams at us to long for another life. We live in constant compare and contrast. You see this in social media. Right? Those of you that are on social media, believe it or not, whether you're intending it or not, what you're seeing is other people's lives and then you're measuring it up. Um, like I said, maybe unintentionally. And I'm not saying all social media is bad. That's not that kind of preacher to say that you've got to dump it all out. But I'm just saying this happens and it rewires our mind, and we start thinking about, why am I not like that? Why do they look like they have everything and I don't? I can't wait to get there. Or even, I can't, I'm glad I'm not there. And so we are tempted to waste our days looking for something more, something else. Pursuing fleeting pleasures like Solomon did. Longing for something new to look forward to. I remember me and my family went to Disney World for the first time all together last year. We love Disney World, y'all. <laughs> it was great. It was wonderful. A week, I, I loved seeing the joy on my kids' faces. And I know some of you are like, Disney World, that's vain. I get it. I'm with you. It's all fake, but it is fun while you're there. And after the seven days, the decompress, it was like, what else do we have to look forward to next? When's the next trip? When's the next vacation? 
It almost felt like driving back into our garage was a little depressing. All this fun, the high life, everything was wonderful. Spent all this money, and then back to normalcy. And we start thinking, what's next? What else do we have to look forward to? And we're missing today. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 7 through 10, what does the preacher say? Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, Sheol being the grave to which you are going. All of us are going. This morning I want to look at joy-filled stewardship. I want to look at the joys of being alive. And first off, I want us to see that we need to enjoy the repetitive blessings of life. Look at what the author says in verse 7. Go, this is the, the very first part of verse 7. May seem real general and simple, but let's read it again. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. What is eating and drinking? It's the routine. It's something that we do every day. Most of us three times a day. Some of us more than three times a day. Some of us less. But eating is something that we do every single day, sometimes without thought. Now listen, I understand that you and your spouse or you and your family or you if you're single or you and your friends may before each meal give thanks, lift them up. And I understand I'm not trying to say that you're not sincere when you likely are. But how often are we actually thinking about the food in front of us, the drink in front of us, being God's protection and provision, a gift, a blessing to be enjoyed and to give him all the praise, honor, and glory? What the preacher is communicating here is that we need to see the blessings of the routine. Simple, everyday graces. And let the normalcy of life be done in joy and in faithfulness. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. This is food and drink. This is the provisions of today. They are gifts to be enjoyed and stewarded. Because we need to eat bread, but we don't need to be a glutton. We need to drink our wine, but we don't need to get drunk. They're to, gifts to be enjoyed, but also stewarded in joy. We are a people, we've already established this, but I want to reiterate over and over again just so it just gets into your mind because this is who we are. We are wired to become numb. 
And when the freshness wears off, we become calloused. We're not really seeing life as a blessing. We're not seeing today as anointed. We're not seeing it as new mercies that should, yes, I'm going to say inspire us, okay, to live for the glory of Christ. Moms in this place that are stay-at-home moms changing dirty diapers. Some of us think, ah, how can this be glory? How can this bring glory to the name of Christ? Certainly it can. You get home, you see that your house is a mess and husband and wife partner together. Let's clean this place. Is that bringing glory to Christ? Oh, it can. The fact that we have a place to live, the fact that we have food to drink, I mean food to eat and wine to drink. But when the freshness wears off, we become callous. We're prone to become numb. We're wired to become numb of the everyday graces in life. And we can do this in our relationships, with our jobs, with our church. I'm stuck. It doesn't feel like anything's happening. Because the newness is worn off. That's the hardest thing about um, church planting, Pastor Bryce, is a lot of people are come and they're like oh this is great this is like the best version of my last church I'm so glad to be here then the honeymoon phase ends abruptly when the freshness wears off we are prone to become numb we are prone to become calloused But the author here, the preacher here, is saying, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. And then look at the second portion of verse 7 of chapter 9. Interesting little phrase here. I love it, though. For God has already approved what you do. Now, this is not a verse that says, hey, just throw yourself into licentiousness. Just go and do whatever you want. You don't have to be holy. You're fine. God has approved what you do. You can do whatever you want. Be like Solomon, pursue all these fleeting pleasures in the world. Have everything, just do what you want. Now, that's not really what this verse is communicating. What this verse is communicating is a far greater truth for us to understand and comprehend. It's this, that God has ordered your steps. And as believers, people that believe in a sovereign God, this portion of Scripture, it teases out our justification in Christ, our security in that we are blood-bought, purchased children of God, that He's ordered our steps, that we don't have to walk on eggshells in this life. Christians often live in fearful anxiety, but this truth that we have right here before us, it's really beautiful. It's it's teasing out imputed righteousness that no matter what happens in this life, whether you experience lack, remember how Paul said, I've experienced lack and I've experienced plenty and I've learned to be content, not just content in a cold way, but in a joyful way. Christians often live in fearful anxiety. You know these people. I've been one of them walking on eggshells because they think God is waiting to strike them if he sees any kind of imperfection. And then some of us live life like, 
man, I've got two job opportunities or I've got two different schools I've got to choose from. What is God's will? What is God's will? I just need him to shine a light on one school and not the other or one job and not the other. And we just live in fearful anxiety that we have to make all these right choices and that God is sitting there testing us, waiting for us to either make the right one or the wrong one. How about this? Abide in him. And then his will plays out. Those who abide in him can live joyfully even in the ordinary rhythms of life. We don't have to fear in a frightening way. We don't have to fear him. We fear him in reverence and awe because we want to hate sin like he hates sin. And we want to love holiness as he is holy. But we don't live in fright. For God has already approved what you do. He has ordered our steps. So enjoy the stewardship of life. The ordinary, everyday graces of life. Food, drink, provision. Another day with your family. But not only do we see in this passage that we need to be more perceptive of enjoying the repetitive blessings of life. Secondly, we need to enjoy maturity. This is a big one, okay? You might not really, it might not jump out at you at first in the passage, but uh, I want to kind of live in it together for just a few minutes. But look at verse 8, if you will. We've already tackled verse 7. Let's look at verse 8, at least the first part of verse 8. It says this, let your garments be always white. Okay, and I know, I know uh, Pastor Bryce is certainly faithful, and I'm sure that he's touched on this many, many times as well as anybody else that has uh, preached and filled the pulpit in this place. But the stay young culture, which we still live in, stay as young as you can for as long as you can, it breeds discontentment, believe it or not. And it breeds spiritual laziness. And what the author's trying to communicate here is, yes, enjoy the everyday graces for God has already approved what you do. Therefore, let your garments be also white. What is he saying? He's saying, present yourself like you're alive and well. Now, I understand that it's using the terminology of dress. But it's not like there's a dress code for Christians. There's different cultures. Different cultures have different standards. And even in our context, somebody's Sunday best is not the same as someone else's Sunday best for church services. We get that. So don't focus too much on the garments and the literal. Let your garments always be white so the people of Israel only wear white all the time. No. He's saying, present yourself like you're alive and well. Have a bright countenance. Now, this should strike a chord because we have a lot of nasty Christians, and I'm not, um, I don't know many of you personally, um, but there are people that, they even have a sort of pride about the fact that they are the tell-it-like-it-is crowd. 
There's no real grace in how they carry themselves. Or you have the people that are all, always woe is me and understand that life brings different phases and you go through seasons of hardship. And I'm not saying that you know, people with their head down are doing anything wrong, but I'm just saying there's some people that carry themselves like they're dead or dark. And this kind of translates to the whole stay young culture that breeds discontentment and spiritual laziness, laziness altogether. But we want to have a, Christians, followers of Jesus, those that belong to God, should have a bright countenance, happy to be alive. Those who love maturing, those who love responsibility, those who love growing up. See, we live in a culture where a lot of people are scared and they don't want to grow up. Because guess what? All our freedoms just disappear. It's like those people that are afraid to have that first kid. I'm not trying to tell you when to have kids or how many kids to have. We didn't know we were going to have five. I don't have a conviction to say, hey, just have as many as possible. Maybe you do, and that's okay too. But I'm saying there are some people that are afraid of growing up and afraid of maturity, and so they want to stay in immaturity as long as they can. And our culture kind of helps them along. Don't get married, that old ball and chain. (laughs) Don't have kids, and you won't be able to travel. You won't be able to go see movies whenever you want. You're going to have to budget. The one that wants their garments to be white, the one with a bright countenance, the ones that are happy to be alive also love maturing. They love the responsibility of growing up. And then the second part of this verse kind of helps us along little by little. So verse 8b would say, let not oil be lacking on your head. So let your garments always be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. What does this mean for us? In maturity, in enjoying maturity, live spirit-filled, anointed lives. It's not like we're going to go to Lifeway. I know the stores are closed down, but get that little oil that they have and every morning and walk around. No, there's a meaning behind this text means that people that belong to God live spirit-filled, anointed lives. We are consecrated, set apart. We are called saints. We are children of the Most High. And so when we live, we love living. We love maturing. We love responsibility. We love being active both in civil and in kingdom work. We love where God has placed us. The United States of America, Mississippi, Olive Branch, Horn Lake. We love this place. We're active. We're alive. There's so many people that are just waiting to, to move on to something next. I'm here uh, for a time, and I just want to get away. Now, listen, I understand people have jobs, and people are relocated, and certain hard decisions have to be made. But some of us are just not here. Our countenance is dark, and we're walking around like zombies. Honestly. But the truth is, and what the preacher's trying to teach us, is that God approves what we do. God is for us, believers. Why would we be carnal and reclusive, living as though we were defeated? Living as though the situation that we are in in this life has bound us 
to joylessness. And so enjoying maturity is being wise with your time. Being, as the New Testament Jesus teaches, to be sober-minded. Have your eyes open to the kingdom activity. I mean, that's part of the essence of this whole series, right? Seeing the family, not just as a family, but a kingdom family. Eyes open everything reoriented by the gospel. Be wise with your time. Be sober-minded, taking every thought captive, using your life for the divine mission, a kingdom focus through kingdom lenses. Right? Amen? Enjoy. Maturity, enjoy growing up, enjoy the responsibility because it's all kingdom related. Your job, your relationships, your parenting. Kingdom involved, kingdom perspective. Enjoy maturity. Not only are we to enjoy the repetitive blessings of life. Not only are we to enjoy maturity, but thirdly, look at this, enjoy those God has placed around you. Enjoy those God has placed around you. Let me draw your attention to verse 9, first part of verse 9. And it says this, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God has given you under the sun. Let's stop there for a second. Remember, I told you in chapter 12, he's kind of talking to a, to a son. We don't know precisely who the son was. But here he's addressing men, and I know that means some of you are tuning this out, especially those that are single, but just kind of hang with me for a second. I do want to address what it addresses, and I want you to hear this, especially if you're single and you want to be married. Listen up. He says, enjoy your wife, which is interesting, right? Solomon? There's only one, 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 it's a singular word here, okay? And uh, I trust that you know Solomon's life and lifestyle and all the women and wives. Solomon fed his lust and abused his power to acquire women, even some as sex slaves. I mean, if we could just, I mean, that's just scratching the surface. And at the end of his life, as he's pinning this, he's teaching his sons, listeners, to love, not lust. You can see kind of the wisdom of God and humility coming through Solomon. If he says, enjoy life with the wife, singular, whom you love. Basically, not, I'm not putting this in between the lines. He said, listen, I've had all the experience with lust. Treating women like parts and pieces. No peace. More guilt. And what he's teaching here, even though he's not really 
qualified to teach, but God uses vessels as he chooses. Amen? And he says this, your spouse, men, your wife, is a gift of grace and a great means of sanctification, and that is a relationship that you must steward well and faithfully. Because marriage is a concrete, it is a willful covenant. This is the mature definition, meaning of marriage. It's a covenant of work, a gift to steward for the sake of the kingdom. But even though there's that word stewardship and even though there's that word covenant and work, what a blessing, what a joy. And so the author's saying, enjoy life. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, with the spouse that God has given to you. Yes, it's work, but it's also a joy, it's a delight because it's God's kingdom working in and through us, using us. What a privilege to be a part of God's kingdom activity. And marriage is a picture of the gospel, right? Love your wife as what? Christ loved his church, gave himself for her, sacrificed himself for her. All the days of your vain life. That's a, that's a heavy word, vain. But like I said, it, it means fleeting, passing away quickly. But the days that you've given you, that he's given you, enjoy them. Enjoy them with those that God has placed around you that he has given you under the sun. And then look at the second part of verse 9. And this is interesting. It's interesting going together here. The first part of verse 9 and the second part of verse 9 coming together. Listen to this. Because that, okay, enjoying life with the one, with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. That word toil is an interesting one, but this speaks of provision, that men are providers, the managers of the home. And to have a wife to love and to provide for is a blessing. It might be work, but it's a delight and it's a blessing. And for the ladies in this place, this speaks indirectly to you. To have a husband to love and to complete is a gracious gift. It's kingdom work. And you singles in here, listen, this doesn't really leave you out. I know that he had a specific audience he was speaking to, talking to men, talking to sons. But singles, are you viewing relationships in your life as gifts from God to be stewarded? Do you see yourself as being given to the life of the local church that it is, as Paul says, an advantage while you are single? And so as much as this does speak directly to spouse and spouse, we can uh, apply this to the relationships that God has entrusted us with, including the relationships in the community of faith that is your local church. To enjoy life with those that God has placed around you and steward those relationships well. And I'm not just pulling this out of thin air because the author of Ecclesiastes already addressed this, chapter 4. I don't think it'll be on the screen, but I want to read it for you. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now listen to verse 10 of chapter 4. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You see the 
communal, the community-driven language of togetherness, being better together in the household of God. And yes, where marriage is the preeminent example of oneness that the preacher is supplying before us, it carries weight into other relationships. Two is strong, the three-fold three cord is not easily broken. Another passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. But part of stewardship, part of joy in stewardship, is enjoying those God has placed around you. There's a fourth one, okay? So when we look at the joys of being alive, we want to first enjoy the repetitive blessings of life. We want to enjoy maturity, enjoy growing up. Thirdly, we want to enjoy those God has placed around us. And fourthly, enjoy your work. Here's that word work again. But enjoy your work. Look at verse 10 all together. Verse 10 says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Some of your translations might say do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that is death, the grave, to which you are going. Interesting lesson here. Whatever your hand finds to do, do so with all your might. What does that mean? Pretty simple, right? Any of you can come up here and give this lesson. What does it mean? Work hard. Right? Today? Not tomorrow, not when you get the promotion, not when you escalate in ministry. Today, be faithful, work hard, whatever your hand finds you to do today, whether you think it's making a difference, whether you think it's influential work or not, maybe it's behind the scenes, maybe no one will ever hear it, maybe no one will ever give you credit for it. Some of you feel lost, insignificant. Understand this, what, what the preacher's teaching, be faithful in whatever your hand finds to do. Do it with your might. Work hard. But there's also connotation, not just work hard, get better, mature even in your work. Advance, build credibility, build integrity, be loyal, be gracious. Yes, this applies to your vocation, education, and church community. I feel like we're people that are just, our tendency is to not get better, but to start to let go and to be more passive. And I see that in church And this is not just the grand indictment of church, but uh, so so many churches are so staff dependent. Listen, that's that's what they get paid for. They're the professionals. Um, At first, I get it. You know, uh, church set up chairs, and I know that you've got a wonderful volunteer team in here, and God bless them. There's there's a day where we kind of listen. We don't need to be doing this anymore, do we? Can't we just have this all done for us? We deserve it. We, we've put in our time. Be it your home life, your vocation, your education, church, family of faith, the local church. God has placed you in for such a time as this. Work and serve your guts out. Without grumbling and complaining. Yeah, some people are going to be nasty. Sometimes it's going to be dreary. Some days 
wake up on the proverbial wrong side of the bed. But in totality, your mind needs to shift from, okay, work hard at first and then just let it get easy so I can get lazier. No, today, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For this is the work, the toil that God has ordained for you for today. Not tomorrow. So work and serve your guts out. Be dependable. Be responsible. Be a load-bearing servant. The Bible calls us even relationally to bear one another's burdens. Are you bearing others' burdens? Always tell our people in our membership classes, we call them foundations classes, we say, listen, now is the point where you shift from visitor to member. And what does that mean? It means up to this point, it is we want to serve you. We want to get to know you. We want you to come in here, get to know us, be a part of the life of the church. But now that you've covenanted to join, now you will serve others. You'll serve your guts out. You'll serve this church. And so Christians, those that belong to God, we are ones that, here's the connotation. Here's kind of the secondary other side of the coin meaning that I don't want you to miss, and it's very practical. Because if you're one that works and serves your guts out, you're dependable, responsible, you build integrity and credibility, and you're getting better, guess what that means? It means you reject passivity. And you reject apathy and you reject sluggishness. You enjoy work. You enjoy serving. You enjoy the toil that God has provided for today. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave that is Sheol to which you are going. Kind of a somber way to end that passage, right, for us today. But what this means, and this is actually good. This life is a temporary stewardship and a temporary responsibility to make the most of in the name of Christ. Because when you do reach the grave, your time is up. Your work here on this earth is done. And these particular responsibilities cease. This passage and any of Solomon's teachings in here, they're never negating an afterlife, but they're showing us how to live and to love the life God has given us today. And so listen to the preacher on repeat because I'm going to bring up another passage from earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes. Similar, kind of a branch off of our primary text for today. But Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25 says this. Read this. Let it watch over you, okay? I don't want you to miss it. I don't want to miss it. It'll bring joy to your heart, maybe conviction to your soul, but that's pretty synonymous sometimes. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 and 25 says this. There is nothing better, okay? Word of God, right? That's what we're dealing with. Inspired, inerrant, word of God. Nothing better. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat 
or who can have enjoyment? This is that quintessential finding your satisfaction in Christ and in him alone. Your identity, everything that you have, your work is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This passage screams to us, okay? And listen, the only rescue, the only rescue from the routine, the monotony of life is knowing God in Christ for he brings purpose. But not only is he the only rescue from the routine of life, the monotony of life, he is the only rescue from the chaos. So the only rescue from the chaos is knowing God in Christ, he brings peace. And so whether you think you're stuck in a rut that's never gonna end and you just feel like every day is the same and you don't know what to do next, Let the gospel reorient your mind to see the joy in the life that God has given you. Or maybe you're in a season of complete chaos. You have no idea why God is allowing the things to happen to you that are happening. You can't understand diseases and death. We can attribute them to the fall And we can say that God has a purpose and he's working through everything. And all that is true and wonderful and we give our amen to that. But he is higher than we are. And so there is faith and there is trust that even in the chaos, the things that we can't explain. When we see injustice prevail, the whole book, there's whole chapters in Ecclesiastes Talking about why do I see the evil prevailing and the righteous being kicked to the curb? Why is this happening? It's chaotic. We're under the sun. He is over. He is above. And so the only way to get sanity under the sun is to seek the one who is above the sun. To seek his kingdom and his righteousness And all the other things will be added and put in their perfect place. Serve him and serve him well. Listen, congregation of vintage church, the answer is the gospel. It's always the gospel. The one far beyond and above the sun had to come under the sun to give us himself, clothed himself in frail humanity. He put on a body so that he would be killable walked in the flesh in perfect obedience. And he took the cross. He took the full brunt of the wrath of God for our sins. Because we under the sun, we are doomed without the one over the sun coming under the sun to rescue our souls and to give us life, meaning, and purpose. To put eternity into our hearts. To bring us into his kingdom to allow us to be part of his kingdom activity on this planet to give us divine sanity so that you and I, when we leave here today, we can eat and we can drink and we can enjoy our work and we enjoy it because of him. And there's even a meal today. Right? 
we come and we celebrate the fact that as a family, as this local church, Christians united under the gospel of Jesus Christ come together and we share a meal and we see the significance because he gave us his body and he spilled his blood so that you and I can have joy and purpose here, now, in the present, today. To God be the glory. Let me pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the truth of Scripture. Lord, I thank you that you have placed us here, that it's by your sovereign will that we are here now in this life, in this stage of life, in this moment of life, whatever situation we found our, find ourselves in, Lord, we know that it's ordained, spoken forth by you. And that in your love for us as your children, Lord, you placed us here to be the body of Christ, to work hard, to be together, to love one another and serve one another, to minister to this place, this city, to be the light in a dark place, to be salt in a perverse generation, that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors of the one who has called us according to his purposes. And we share your love. And we share the message of the gospel with a lost and dying world that by any means you may save some. So Lord, unite our hearts as we respond. Respond to your word. And Lord, let us see your gift of this life. Let us have joy in being alive today. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.